RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 358, Body Parts. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek and try to discover the morals, meanings, and financial implications that lie within. This week, body parts. Oh, hang on just a second, Norman. I just need a moment to delete this eBay listing. Oh, by the way, uh, I have good news. So... Speaking of EBA, I put a huge bid on this one-of-a-kind Flash Gordon prop. Um, I don't know the I don't know the seller. I mean, he has a pretty good rating, I guess. But uh, someone named Slow Mo Gentleman. So, <laughs> dude, the, the bid was a steal. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so about that. Uh, Hold on a second. I'm, I'm switching screens so I don't get outbid by a sniper. Uh, so while while I'm doing that, why don't you hit up this week's trivia before I get sniped? Oh, hey, uh, sorry, I, I just finishing up. I had a counterbid on someone named Lounge Lizard on a... Uh, uh, it was another eBay auction. Uh, hey, while I'm doing that and definitely not sniping, uh, Norman, can you tell people how to reach us? Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We'll go to trivia in a moment, but first, a quick word from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. Norman, I'm so excited about this (laughs) because you and I and longtime Mission Log listeners will know how much we love the official Star Trek Starships collection from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. These, of course, are the ships that are officially authorized by CBS Studios, the official Star Trek Starships collection available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. It's the ultimate collection, vessels from all over the Star Trek universe, original series, next-gen, DS9, Voyager, Discovery, the movies, everything. They're all there. Even ships from the animated series, you know that they are there. The one thing that I loved when they finally released these is that now I can build like my, my credenza collection at the <laughs> office and really show my fandom in a very professional way because... Yes. Each one of these models is a die-cast model, a combination of die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials. They're hand-painted with the references of the actual CG models that are used in production and with photos, if they exist, of original studio models. Each ship comes with a display base, which is fantastic. Even at the bottom, underneath the display base, is the ID sticker of that particular ship. And a collector's magazine, which is fantastic because who doesn't love references and 
gorgeous hero shots of their ships, the specs, and all of the accoutrement that goes along with it, and all of the technology, the breakdown of what is going on with that ship on the magazine. It's fantastic. It's fantastic reading to collect. Now, here's the important part. Come close. Come close. Listen carefully. Subscribe to the collection today to receive your first ship, the USS Enterprise NCC-1701D, for only $4.95 with free shipping. Use the code MISSION, M-I-S-S-I-O-N, at checkout. And get this. Get this exclusive for Mission Log listeners. You will get the USS Defiant NX-74205 from Deep Space Nine for free. That's right. You get a free bonus ship because you are a Mission Log listener, and that also is with free shipping. Free Norman, free. The Defiant for free. That is amazing. That is an amazing bonus for signing up with our mission checkout code. After this, then, you'll also get two new ships delivered directly to your door every month. And believe it, John, or not, there are over 180 ships I want them in all. their collection. I want them all, too. <laughs> I want them all, too. But now I can get my free to find. Yes. As a subscriber, you're also entitled to free gifts worth over $90. Now, that's including the Enterprise Dedication Plaque. Sweet. And the Borg Cube. Sweet. Fantastic design. Incredible quality. And if you're not happy with it, you can cancel your subscription at any time. So if you want to learn more about this, full details for this offer can be found at herocollector.com slash mission log. And if you want to purchase your favorite ships individually, you can do that also for a few dollars more, either online at shop.eaglemoss.com or at your local comic book shop. But here's what you do. You get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 plus Again, the key word here, free, USS Defiant for free when you sign up today at herocollector.com slash mission log. You get the beautiful and tough little ship that is the Defiant. But you know what's not tough, John? You know what's not tough? What's not tough? Because you prepare so well. Here is John Champion with this week's trivia. All right. Trivia for body parts. The story here is credited to Louis P. DeSantis and Robert J. Bolivar. Uh, for both of them, their first and only Star Trek script. This was a spec pitch and centered around the what-if of Quark pre-selling his dead body. Staff took it and ran with it. So we have a teleplay here credited to Hans Beimler, longtime Trek staffer here. Hans started back in the TNG days with his first credit being Coming of Age. So yes, season one. He was a script editor and a writer as well as a producer for years and has many more stories to come for DS9. The most recent of his that we covered was Shattered Mirror. We should also give a shout out to Rene Echeverria since he contributed to some of the depth on Quark's character for this script. Today's show is directed by Avery Brooks, well, the captain himself behind the camera on this one, and maybe not such a surprise since he only really has a couple of very short scenes in today's episode. We most recently talked about his directorial efforts on Rejoined. Ooh, 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 we have a new ship. We have a new run about the USS Volga. I feel like we should ring a bell or something whenever there's a new name for a runabout where we can name check a river. The Volga, 
of course, is the longest river in Europe, wrapping all the way around a sizable portion of Russia and emptying into the Caspian Sea. Also, check out that great song, Volga Boatman, dating from the middle 19th century and recorded many times over my personal favorite, the version by Paul Robeson. Now, we have a B-plot here about the O'Briens awaiting the birth of their next child and Kira being an unexpected surrogate. Now, most people probably already know it, but it's a cool thing to point out that Nana Visitor was pregnant in real life. TV has a long tradition of either trying desperately to hide pregnancy, on I Love Lucy, you didn't even say the word pregnant, or writing out a character. Iris Stephen Bear's wife, Laura, came up with the brilliant solution we have here. Use an existing plot line to explain the physical change in Kira. Also worth pointing out, the real-life pregnancy was from the real-life relationship Nana had with Alexander Sittig. They had been an item for a while since meeting on the show. Well, we have some guest stars here. Kind of. I mean, it's really old home week. We have Hannah Hatai as Molly O'Brien. We have some lovely work by Andrew Robinson as Garrick. We have Max Gredinchik in a double role as Rom, and also the Dream State version of Ghent. But first and foremost, oh man, it's Jeffrey Combs. I, I cannot hide my awe for Jeffrey Combs, and I especially like this, because we just saw him put to great use two episodes ago, which, remember, was only shot one episode ago, as Wayun into the death. It's a small band of Star Trek actors who play more than one prominent guest role, and much rarer for that actor to come back in a different role so soon after the previous one. He's that versatile, and there is so much more to come. Wait, was that item the thing Brian Blessed was waving over his head while shouting? You know, that time in a movie? Actually, I'm not sure that narrows it down. Prologue. Chief O'Brien is lamenting to his friends that he never should have let a pregnant Keiko go on a botanical expedition to the Gamma Quadrant. Hold that thought, though, it's all the time we'll spend on it now, because we have to jump over to Quark's bar, where a very magnanimous Quark is offering up a free drink to his brother, Rom. Quark just got back from their home world and has so much to tell. He cut a deal, he went to the great marketplace... He saw their mother, and, oh yes, he also found out that he's dying. Act 1. It's true. Quark found out that he has the extremely rare, incurable, fatal Dorex syndrome. Lucky break, huh? He's only got about a week to live. So much to do in the meantime, like make out his will and take care of all his debts. Only the debts to other Ferengi, of course. He's not worried about the ones owed to humans or Bajorans or even Klingons. As Rom reminds him, rule of acquisition number 17 states that a contract is a contract is a contract, but only between Ferengi. Rom has an idea, though. Quark could sell his desiccated remains on the Ferengi futures market. Surely he could make enough that way to pay off his debts. Quark is less optimistic. Sure, he might have been Grand Nagus for a week, but he's just a bartender and deeply associated with Starfleet at that. Still, he does it, 
puts himself up there in the virtual market for people to bid. Meanwhile, in ops, Worf is tracking the early appearance of the USS Volga returning without warning from the Gamma Quadrant. There's damage to the ship and injured crew on board who are beamed immediately to the infirmary. When O'Brien enters, Keiko is still in surgery, but Kira is conscious on an examination bed. She tells O'Brien that she and his wife will be fine. There's just one slight change of plans. The baby Keiko has been carrying is now transplanted into Major Kira. Act 2. Bashir explains. There is a problem with the deflector on board the Volga when they were hit by an asteroid. He, Keiko, and Kira were thrown about, but Keiko suffered badly and could have lost the baby. Thinking quickly, Bashir moved the baby to Kira's womb and had to work a little medical magic to allow a human fetus to metabolize Bajoran nutrients. Everyone will be fine, but there's just one more thing. Bashir can't move the forthcoming O'Brien back to Keiko because, well, it's complicated. There are reasons that trying it again would hurt both the baby and Major Kira. But look on the upside. Bajorans have a shorter gestation period, so baby sooner rather than later? Yay! Quark is now doing what we all do when we put something on eBay, staring at the listing non-stop until there's a bid. There is one, just one, and it happens to be for the exact amount that Rom has in savings. The brothers argue a bit as Quark is feeling down on himself again, just as a new bid comes in. A huge bid. 500 bars of latinum. And no word on who this mystery bidder is. The Nagus? Maybe so. It's an anonymous bidder. Who cares? An offer like this is too good to pass up. Sold. Quark is spending that windfall already, figuring out how much to leave to whom, which debts to pay off. Then, just as he's planning the eulogy, Dr. Bashir enters with some interesting news. He got a message from Dr. Orpox on Ferenginar that Quark indeed does not have Doric syndrome. Great news! Quark will live, and he can sue for malpractice. Late that night, Quark gets an unexpected visitor as Brunt from the FCA, and he's there to check on the merchandise. You see, he's the high bidder, and he intends to collect. Act 3. Quark is not going to die, but Brunt doesn't care, and no amount of bribery will change his mind. He wants 52 discs of Quark's desiccated remains within the week. Why? Because by Brunt's estimation, Quark is a bad Ferengi. He's compromised himself too many times in the name of fairness. Heck, he's practically Starfleet at this point. To prove it, Brunt says he's got two choices. Either die and fulfill the contract, or break the contract. Which only proves how weak a Ferengi Quark really is. It'll ruin him for life. So what is Quark to do? He doesn't want to die but he does not want to break a Ferengi contract even more. He and Rom visit Garrick's tailor shop, because, after all, Garrick is a man whose previous career in the Obsidian Order gave him certain talents. Rom is onto it. Quark wants Garrick to kill Brunt. No, Quark says. I want you 
to kill me. Act 4. Yeah, and Quark wants it to be quick, painless, and not leave a mark. Rom is outraged, but Quark holds fast. It's all about the contract, and he's a Ferengi businessman. He's sticking to the rules of acquisition because that's what defines who he is. It's not about convenience. Checking in on the O'Brien household, Keiko is recovering, but she and Miles are feeling a bit left out of the process of their baby's development. What to do? Well, for starters, they've invited the Major over for dinner. She's there, baby kicking, which just thrills Keiko. The later she stays, the more familiar and relaxed they all get. And then the O'Briens bring up their wacky idea. So Garrett kills Quark. Neck snap, face down, and a plate of some food. All right, not really. It's a hollow sweet simulation. And the real Quark is being a really tough customer. He wants a quick, painless death that he doesn't see coming. That leaves out shooting, stabbing, nerve gas, and so many other techniques. He wants a surprise and just wake up in the divine treasury where he can bribe his way into the afterlife. Garrick says, okay, whatever he comes up with, Quark will never know what hit him. Later that night, Quark returns to his quarters, very anxious that any moment could be his last, but he settles in for sleep, then to find himself in the afterlife, in the divine treasury. Act 5. Well, he really did it. Quark is dead, and now it's time to face Gint, the first Grand Nagus, who looks an awful lot like... Rom? Yeah, it's only a dream, and in this dream, Rom plays the role of Gent and urges Quark to break the contract. Really? Break the rules? Yes, Gent says rules are just made up. They're suggestions. What's more important here is that we're talking about a life. Quark is having what might be considered a crisis of faith. He's dedicated his whole life to the rules. But here's his dream giving him permission to break those very rules until Brunt shows up. Well, it's the dream version of Brunt, there to remind Quark about the consequences. Driving home the point, Brunt lunges at Quark, hands around his throat, to which Ghent says there's nothing he can do. Struggling, Quark then finds himself awake, in a sweat, and relieved. The next day, he finds Brunt in his bar. The confrontation goes as might be expected. Quark returns the latinum and then boldly states that he's breaking the contract. Brunt, gloating, has won. He's shown that Quark is a failure, and then he shouts to the crowd he is closing Quark's bar. No commerce, no employment, and no Ferengi may do business with Quark. All assets are confiscated. The bar is closed. Wasn't there something with Major Kira and the O'Briens? Yeah, uh, there, there was. Something that Miles and Keiko had thought up. Why not have Kira move in with them until the baby is born? And Kira does. Without missing a beat, Molly takes to their new house guest, calling her Aunt Nerese. Despondent, Quark sits in his now completely empty bar. There's nothing, and no one left except for Rom, who comes to check on his brother. But then comes Dr. Bashir with a case of brandy he doesn't like, just wanting to see if Quark could take it off his hands. Then there's Dax, who has some really ugly glasses she doesn't want. 
Finally, in comes Captain Sisko, saying they've got some repair work to do in one of the habitat areas and need to store some furniture. How about right here? Quark is flummoxed at first, but the goods and the people keep pouring in. The end. Well done, John. And I would celebrate it a little bit more how well you wrote that write-up, but... Uh I got a little bit of bad news. I'm a little flummoxed right now. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I don't want you to be flummoxed. That's, that's never a good thing. Don't. So uh, I checked in on my bid. Yeah? And someone deleted it. Oh. Some, the dude that was selling it deleted it. Wow. The, the, the Flash Gordon original? That, oh, yeah, man. That's geez. lame. I'm so mad. I'm very sorry. To, there must be a rule that you could follow punitively. For mm. this person, I hey, more power yeah. to you, man. Yeah. A little bummed. But, well, uh, while I'll you're persevere. waiting to hear back from eBay about that, we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll cover the rest of body parts, um, okay. <laughs> man. <laughs> as soon as at the beginning, when uh, uh, Miles says about Keiko, like I should have never let her go. Come on, I, Miles. Keiko has been written out of more episodes than she has been in. Okay, you should be used to this idea, just like uh, uh, in-universe, out-of-universe. She's just going to be gone. Get, get used to that idea, okay? Yeah, I mean, she was gone for so long that, <laughs> that he didn't even know she didn't was pregnant. Didn't know she was pregnant. So. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. Still but you ridiculous. Know, you know what was funny, though, in that scene where, where Miles kept saying, like, I have to keep reminding her that she's pregnant. And then yeah. Dax says, yeah, I guess the extra weight, the morning sickness, the mood swings, the medical examinations, <laughs> they aren't reminders enough. So much shade, Dax. Yes. So much yes. shade. <laughs> Very good scene for her. I, this is a, a point that it's so obvious, but I love the Ferengi association of cost with quality. Like, mm. the Dr. Unferenginar is so good. He's so good that he charges two slips of latinum just to sit in his waiting room, which is a nice little throwback to family business where uh, he and Rom went back and met, met Moogie and they're trying to get into the waiting room at the SCA and they're going to charge. Great, great stuff. And then the implication, well, the, the outright statement that Bashir can't be any good as a doctor because he's free. You know, don't even count the numerous times that Bashir has helped or or straight up saved Quark's life up until now. Like, ah, he's he's terrible. He doesn't charge. You know, uh, writing bits like that, I don't know who is in charge of, say, like the cultural details for like all the different races. But Mm -hmm. that makes so much sense when it comes to the Ferengi because they're capitalists. You know, they're all Mm -hmm. about... Mm-hmm. How the acquisition of wealth to the extreme. And if you charge a lot, you must be good. Right. But they also should know that if they charge a lot, they're also following the rules of acquisition because yeah. they're separating money from the customer. Right. So, of course, that's going to happen that way. But it's, it is a little bit of a dig, uh, kind of putting this uh, dichotomy between the Frankie capitalists versus kind of like the Socialist Federation. Yeah, uh, 100%. Right? Yeah. And you're right. Um, well, uh, Quark would never, ever like turn down uh, a free exam or a free meal. I mean, that's just getting his values worth, yeah. right? He's getting the upper hand <laughs> in that sense. Yes, yes. Well, and, y- you know, uh, going on that point about uh, sort of the difference between the capitalist, the greedy capitalist versus the, the utopian socialist uh, version, you know, uh, uh, post-scarcity economy of the Federation, um, 
the other dig here is look at what Quark is doing. Quark, the and all Ferengi, the, the superior businessmen, he's just run up huge debts. That that's just sort of like expected. That's how they operate. I mean, I get it that they're businessmen who are an analog for all the worst practices of humans, but they're also just not great businessmen. <laughs> they're just they're, like they just expect. Well, I'm going to die with all this debt, so I, I just got to figure out a way to pass it along to other people. <laughs> I mean, right. that is a a straight up uh, dig at uh, at the worst of the system. Um, Oh, and there's a great line there. Uh, when you see how much your body is worth, you're going to wish you died years ago. <laughs> <laughs> he Terrific is line. awesome. Yes. He was so good. Max Rodenchik was so good. I love Rom. I yeah. really do. How could he he's not? Be- he's, I mean, he's become like one yeah. of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. He's really got a heart. You know, it's, it's nice to see. Um Oh, and I love how getting to that point that it's when Rom convinces Quark to put his body on the futures exchange. They they walk over to the computer and he just like pushes two buttons. It's like this offhand thing on a terminal there in the bar for him to put his body on the exchange. Like it's something that is programmed and just ready to go at any time with no notice. Like this, this sort of the reality for them is like, yeah, no matter where I am, I better just be ready to put my body on the exchange. You know, it was a really nice, small detail, but really, really well executed piece of acting was when when Armin just kind of sidles up to the uh, to the kiosk and mm-hmm. just uses the back of his knuckle. Yeah, right, right, just, right. He, just, right. he doesn't know, even look like, at it. He just, eh. I've done this a billion <laughs> times, or you know, like, he doesn't even look. It's just a nice detail. Yeah. to really make you buy into the character. He really sells you on that. Um, but when it comes to this, the, the grand exchange or, or this, uh, this kind of like futuristic eBay, mm-hmm. Brunt, I mean, he must have been waiting for this moment, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he straight up sniped yeah. right? that, <laughs> that listing. And Brunt, how much debt did he go into for that 500 I, I bars of you know, gold-pressed Latin? I, I know. Brunt, Brunt has like the app, you know, the, the underground app that's ready to just automatically log in and grab that thing no matter what the cost. Yeah. He, he must have like the words Quark's death like flagged on filters. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Hey, uh, we haven't really seen much of it before, but uh, props to Quark for having some very funky furniture in his quarters. I like that. I like that. And, um, oh, and I love the bit about him charging admission to his own eulogy. So that that is so good. I love it. You know, uh, kind of like deviating a little bit from all the great Ferengi stuff that was going on. I really liked the moments that Keiko and Kira had together. I thought that was, it's just nice. They're, they're having this bond, this motherhood bond going on. And mm-hmm. I know that Keiko's very worried about what's going to happen with her baby and Kira's like, well, this is first for me. Yeah. And I think that, that Nana was kind of leaning into the fact that she was caring. And it just played very honestly. It didn't feel very forced or kind of like written in. There was just a lot of very genuine emotion going on there. Yeah, for real. For real. And uh, the scene in Cork's quarters with, with Armin and Jeffrey, that's just, oh. that's just gold. That's just gold-pressed Latin. Oh, right yes. Yes, you know. it is. Um there, I, I read in uh, Terry Erdman's book uh, about the the acting approach there, and particularly Jeffrey Combs. Just 
saying how much he loved digging into that scene, getting to find this evil core of Brunt. Because we'd, we'd gotten pieces of Brunt before, but this was just going to be a whole other level. And he really went for it. That That's the thing you want out of a great actor is to commit to a choice. And boy, did he. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, uh, nice little aside here. The the business with Garrick and uh, the seat of Morn's pants. I mean, it's just like this little <laughs> throwaway thing. But this is one of those things that I wish that Next Gen got right. And that is, you know, having recurring characters who weren't the top of the food chain and just having a sense of humor about itself. You know, Star Trek in the past, when Star Trek has tried to do humor, a lot of times it's just like, well, we have to do the comedy episode, so we're going to sit down and write jokes. Mm-hmm. And those typically fall flat. But when you've got a little moment like this that you ease into as a character who's been around a long time, who we're, we're delighted to see, and it's just a little natural piece of business, that's the kind of thing uh, in an episode like this that will stand out to me. Uh, mm-hmm. Forever, you know. I mean, they kind of had the opportunity with like a you know, Mr. Mott type character where mm-hmm. he could have, you know, you know, been just chatting up, you know, Jean Luc every once in a while, or yeah. even like trimming Riker's beard or whatever. Oh, right. Would have loved that. That would have been fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, speaking of Garrick, I just I love the gardener talk. Now they only commit to it for about two seconds, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but I like how they got into that. At least they acknowledged it yeah two seconds with garrick saying whatever you need weeded yeah just let me know like yeah okay (laughs) nudge nudge wink wink Uh now another thing that was great in the in the o'brien story is i love how miles just kind of hovers over kira all the time you know let me get you that you know the thing for your back or you know just he he's playing the hovering expecting father which i thought was fantastic he did it so well yes you know, yeah. And coming from some of the heavy episodes that he's been in, it was nice to see him just have these lighter moments. I thought that Colm was really good at that. For real. Absolutely. Um, oh, and, and we usually always like to point out the rules of acquisition. Of course, a lot of emphasis on 17 here, but but a new one, another new one, 239, never be afraid <laughs> to mislabel a product. That That's so, it's so good. It's so good. And you might get more profit out of it. You never yes. know, right? Yes. But the whole dream sequence with, with uh, Rom as Gint, when he said, well, suggestions of acquisition doesn't have the same ring to it. It wouldn't sell. <laughs> I lost my mind that. when he said that. <laughs> oh, it's so good. He was chanting yes. a lot of Sean Wallace in that scene, too, which was great. Yes, yes, yeah. That was great. And, um, oh, when when uh, Cisco at the end, I, this kind of flashed into my head for a moment everybody comes in for this last really nice familial scene they're there to give all this stuff to Cork. we want the bar back you're one of us we're here for you um so cisco brings in all this furniture into quarks and quark says that he'll have to pay a storage fee i i just realistically what does that bill look like and who does it go to so, like, I, I can see at the end of the month, you know, uh, here's Benjamin Cisco with all the work that he has to do on DS9, and, and he's got this bill that comes in from Quark, 
and then he's got to forward that on. Is there somebody at Starfleet Command back in San Francisco who gets these just insane requests? Like somewhere out there is the Enterprise, and and Jean Luc Picard is like, I need five new botanists, I need three new medical staff, I need this, and we need a new shuttle, and we're going to be out here for another five years, whatever. But meanwhile, here's the same guy at Starfleet going. Um, Right, this weird stuff always comes in from DS9. Why are we paying a bar of gold press latinum every month to a bartender? Is that somewhere <laughs> in the Starfleet charter? Where where do we even get latinum? We're Starfleet. We have no money. <laughs> I think that goes to the morale officer. It's there to keep up morale. <laughs> and then what is he? He just goes to keep up a collection. I mean, come on. Like, uh, yeah, mess. I actually kind of took that scene as just a a Ferengi way of saying thank you. Yes. It a hundred percent. Yeah. But it was, yeah. it's, it's well done again, very consistent to the character. Quark is so consistently well-written. Yep. You know, yep. and Armin knows how to play him heads and shoulders above, uh, you know, most of the other, I think most of the other characters, uh, that are either guest stars or some of the lesser recurring main cast. He's just mm-hmm. so good. He's so good. Yeah. Um, it ends on a nice moment for him, but it also n- ends on a nice moment for the O'Briens because I really like the scene where Molly jumps up on the bed and, you know, can I call you Aunt Kira? And I don't know. I get I get a little mushy with uh, those scenes because it's just they're they're cute and they're genuine. And rarely do you see those kind of scenes. Yeah. In Star Trek, especially with children. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's not often that we've seen a lot of big smiles in a familial context. And it's, I I couldn't agree more. It's lovely to see that kind of moment. What does one do with desiccated Ferengi remains? Is there a way to tastefully display them? And if there is, do I even want to know what that is? Hey, we'll get back to body parts in just a moment. But first, a word from Mint Mobile. Norman, the last time we talked, I, I was sort of kicking myself, and I think I'm still kicking myself when I think about having a cell phone for about 20 years and paying an exorbitant fee over that time. Something that a Ferengi would be proud of, that uh, I paid an exorbitant fee for that long. And I think about it, that my cell phone is really like, that is the go-to device that has gone from a luxury to from being able to make a call in my car or or out somewhere to now a crucial piece of equipment that serves so many purposes for me and i I, i'm just i'm a little uh shocked at how much i have spent over time for that and i'm a bit relieved now that i have the option to not have to pay that, but actually take a little bit more control and certainly a lot more ownership over that whole experience. I mean, I was with one of those, actually two of those big wireless companies for the bulk of that time and just thought I'd resign myself that that's the way it is. Sure. Every month they're going to take a huge amount of money out of my account. Well, when you think about it this way, you paid so much at the beginning and now with Mint Mobile, you're going to be saving so much more at the back end. Yeah. So maybe this all averages out to uh, zero sum or more because <laughs> we're saving so much with Mint Mobile. Well, that's the way I like to think of it. So 
as smarter phones or as smartphones get smarter and they cost more, certainly I like to have the bells and whistles. And because it is such a crucial piece of equipment for me on a day-to-day basis, um, that doesn't come cheap. Well, I like the idea then that I am saving what I would have spent on one of those big carriers by not paying those high fees that I can very easily justify the price of the phone that I want. That's kind of the beauty of it. Mint Mobile, I can cut that bill down to 15 bucks a month. That means that every year that is hundreds and hundreds of dollars that I'm saving. So for customers well, like me who hate your wireless bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. So by going online only, and eliminating the traditional costs of retail, marketing, big box stores, all of that, Mint Mobile can pass significant savings on to you. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text, plus crazy fast 4G LTE. Use your own phone, like I do, with any Mint Mobile plan, and keep your same phone number, also like I do, along with all of your existing contacts. And If you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. You know, John, Mint Mobile's customer service is also fantastic. And I just filled a survey out, and I said the three things that, that really sold me on their product and on their service. One was just the ease of use. Ease of use was fantastic. Hands down. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, two, their app is fantastic. You can chart the progress of your data use. It's very easy. It's very clear. It's very, very effective. And three, customer service. I have been like in touch with them on their live chat, on their website, and I did not go into a store for this. I did this all online. I went on their website, mm-hmm. did everything on by instruction, got the package, did everything by instruction, and... It's been seamless. It's been easy. It's been absolutely fantastic. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Well, Norman, you know, once again, we've landed at one of these uh, light, fun comedy episodes where uh, we can just pretty much zip right past this part of the show because, uh, you know, there's just not a lot to cover, right? Well, I mean, you know, we can always just, there are suggestions. This whole episode was about suggestions. <laughs> <All right>. So, <laughs> yeah, right? you don't really need to follow the rules. They're just suggestions. Of course, of course. Um, and, uh, of course, saying all of that was a lie because I, I want to go there right away, right off the bat at the top of this segment. And um, here's what really fired me up about this show is that I love a really good debate discussion about faith, belief, holy books, all of that. I mean, the, the, the rules of acquisition, that is the holy book for the Ferengi. That, that is it. That is the be all, end all. That is how they value themselves. It is how they value each other. It's how they see if they are, you know, uh, according to like Brunt's very fundamentalist uh, adherence to these rules, how good of a Ferengi are you? Sure, you can repeat back the words, but can you live up to every single principle laid out in these, uh, in these rules? Um, here's what's interesting to me about that. Quark knows what's moral, and 
what is moral here isn't just sticking to a rule because the rule is there. Just, just by saying, like, look, oh, well, we, here's a rule. You have to go by it. And you're moral if you follow the rule. And you're not moral if you don't follow the rule. Clearly, we have to have a break with what that thing is. That rule means nothing without the principle actually at play and the person being able to decide the value of that rule. Bront is just purely there for his own gain, um, which definitely is the Ferengi way as far as we've seen and as far as we know. But now we're seeing something much more nuanced, much more interesting, and much more important for this character that we've been on this long journey with. Yeah, you know, Brunt is actually a really good insertion here as a kind of a counterpoint to, to Quark because Brunt is, he is a successful Ferengi by Ferengi standards, by following the rules of acquisition. So this is what Quark laments. He's like, I've tried to be the perfect Ferengi and I failed because I am not good at the, the profession that I have chosen. I am not profitable. I have racked up a lot of debt. These are things that are antithetical to the Ferengi society and the culture. Mm-hmm. But that's just, I mean, what we're really talking about with the rules of acquisition, the 285 of them, <laughs> are very similar to uh, the Judeo-Christian Ten Commandments. You know, these Ten Commandments were written down and they were given to Moses and he brought them down for all of the people of Jerusalem or Israel to follow without question. Yeah, which, but by the but, way, and I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but yeah, the, the, the Ten Commandments, what we all know is the Ten Commandments is that set of tablets, right? But... right. The more you read in the Bible, that that's only the beginning. I, I forget what the actual number is. It's something like 63 commandments that are the, you know, God's law passed along. So we're, we're talking about this little slice that then leads to more and more and more and more. We just happen right. to sort of culturally have absorbed those those top 10, you know, but there's even more to go. Well, according to Mel Brooks, there were 15. <laughs> and I didn't even mean that, but that's a great gag. That is a great bit, yes. Well, I mean, you know, there. so the rules of acquisition is uh, much akin to, like, religious dogmatic belief. Mm-hmm. You know, there are uh, a set of rules, in, in, in Gint's case, you know, suggestions, but they are uh, systematically taught to Ferengi to behave a certain way because this is what their culture is based on. So even to the point where Quark would even consider suicide, not suicide, but having himself murdered to, uh, to uphold Ferengi tradition, yeah. you know, and not to break the contract, one of the rules of acquisition. So I saw that in a, in a similar way when the, the other emissary came and laid down the new religious law so that someone like Kira was compelled to, based solely on religious dogma, to give up being first officer of Deep Space Nine and go practice her Dajara. Right. With, with the art career that she never really wanted to pursue. So it's, uh, belief systems are very interesting when, when they're really strictly adhered to because they never really represent the, the uh, intelligence of the individual. Yeah. Even though that they keep you from straying from the path, but they never really allow you to explore your own like morals because they're sometimes at odds with each other, as we're seeing here. By the way, I was only off by a factor of 10. Uh, it's actually 613, not 63. <laughs> 613 oh. of the commandments, of the laws in the Old Testament. Um, but, but yeah, I, that's 
what I love is this intersection where we're saying, okay, laws, rules, suggestions, <laughs> which was a, a, a fun way to play with that idea. They only have value as far as, well, the people who wrote them down had to have some reason, some context for them. Um, but they don't necessarily apply to every single situation, every single time. What's important is that individuals have a moral code. Individuals are brought up with a moral understanding that is part of uh, their their familial background, their education, sort of the societal contract that we have with everyone. So we can look to those rules as a guideline, but ultimately you have to make the decision if that rule is moral or not. You have, you're the one who is bringing that moral judgment to the rule, not the other way around. But the, also the circumstances, and in Quark's case, bringing your own moral judgment to challenge a rule that your society has built itself on will put you at risk of being outcast. And yeah. that's what he's, that is what he is, is grappling with here. He's like, I can, I can follow my morals, but based on the rules of acquisition, one, what did morals ever get me in terms of profit? Yeah. And two, if I do and actually believe what I'm doing is right, this will actually bankrupt me, which means in Ferengi society, I will be a failure. Yeah. I failed at every level, but the moral level. Well, so. Uh, and so that's what's interesting is that Brunt here is the illustration of that risk, of how important that risk is for Quark. Because Brent, Brunt is totally driven by ideology and, and his mm -hmm. complete indignation that anyone would step outside of his very narrow, literal definition of that ideology and, and identity. I mean, his belief in the rules is lockstep with his identity, his self-identity, everything that is important to him. It, it's like, I mean, it is sort of like the Klingons praising honor, the Vulcans praising logic. And I, I like that we're using this tool here as a mirror held up to ourselves. As we say very often on Mission Log, you know, there are no Ferengi, there are no Klingons, there are no Vulcans, there is only us. So by creating all of these alien species, we're using them as a literary tool to look at ourselves. And that's what we're doing here. We're holding up the mirror to point out the trouble that comes when we sort of overdevelop one part of ourselves. You know, the Klingons have an overdeveloped uh, sense of honor. They have this overdeveloped uh, streak of violence. The Vulcans have this overdeveloped sense of logic. Uh, with the, you know, the very noble intention of keeping themselves out of trouble, the Ferengi have this overdeveloped sense of success and profit and their identity and self-worth being something that they can count in bars of latinum. Now, I also like how they have Quark in the middle of Brunt on one side and Rom on the other side, because in a way... I really think that Quark, in somewhere deep down inside, wishes he could be more like Rom. Mm. Because mm -hmm. Rom has kind of, he's shed that Ferengi cultural attachment to profit because he wants to pursue a career in something that he chose for himself, a, a strength that he has in, 
And I know that Quark keeps calling him an idiot, but, you know, he's a very talented engineer and he knows what he wants for himself. Right. He had the courage to stand up to his brother, let alone Ferengi culture. His brother's word meant everything to him and his brother's respect. But Rom had that that moment of clarity where he had to choose that self-respect for him for his own future. And I think that, you know, you have the ultra capitalist in Brunt. You kind of have this. Um, pseudo bourgeois, mm-hmm. you know, with Quark, and then you have the proletariat and Rom. Yeah, right. And and Quark is kind of leaning more towards it because I think he thinks Rom is having a lot more just uh, genuine enjoyment with his life. Well, yeah, he's fulfilling who he wants to be. He actually gets yeah. to exploit his talent as opposed to just doing what is expected. You know, um, and, and that's uh, since we're talking about character here. I I think. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, of all the broad strokes of DS9 that I know, um, you and I both have not watched ahead in detail in in any level. So I don't know exactly what's coming for Quark and the rest of the series. Please no emails. Um, If he is an outcast because he took a principled position here, is he more like Worf now? So I, I love how Quark grows here in this episode, um, the way that any other number of Star Trek outsiders have had to do in their respective series. So I, I mentioned Worf, because clearly that's a big one. Spock, Data, Odo, you can just keep going through the list. But this is the moment when the character finds definition on their own. The, the, the character finds his or her own code um, in their relationships as opposed to what is prescribed or expected from others. And, and to me, the reason I'm so kind of excited by this in this episode, to me, that is one of the most deeply humanistic things in Star Trek. And, and it is intrinsic, I think, to the overall message of Star Trek. This is the place where... Quark says, oh, wow, I don't have to go to this thing that was written by somebody else to tell me who to be and how to be. I actually get to be that on my own, and I actually get to experience that with the people around me. Mm -hmm. Spock did it a couple of times. Spock was changed by (laughs) V'ger, and after that moment, same thing. I, I don't have to be what Vulcans tell me to be. I don't have to finish Kolinar. I have to be in the moment here with my friends and fulfill my own destiny and and be the best version of myself that I can be. I think this simple act. This simple act. V'ger doesn't. Yeah. It's beyond V'ger's comprehension. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this is one of those threads that we have to have over and over in Star Trek to, to really say, no, that this is the guiding principle. We're not looking for answers out there or answers that are handed down. The answer is in here. And it's interesting. You, you kind of like want to, to figure out where that comes from, because I think at one point in time, and maybe when Quark set up shop, when it was Tarek Noir under the Cardassians, he was a lot more like Brunt. Because he had to be a little bit more ruthless. He had to be a little bit more uh, calloused in terms of uh, being a businessman because he was dealing with the Cardassians. But then the Federation rolls in. 
right? And this is something that uh, I wrote the specific line for you, John, because I think that you can attest to this, that every single episode of The Man from UNCLE is something, something, something affair. Absolutely. Uh, the Dippy Blonde affair, the Concrete Overcoat affair, uh, the Shark affair. The Project, Project Strygas affair, affair, yes. Right? So this is, uh, this is um, uh, something that I wanted to do to, uh, label as the root beer affair. Yes, yes. <laughs> because earlier on, uh, there was that great scene between, I think it was in Way of the Warrior. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, the open on a space station, uh, the text at the bottom, somewhere in the Alpha Quadrant. Yes, go ahead. Somewhere, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so in the root beer affair, uh, in the conversation that Quark had with Garrick, and when he poured in this glass of root beer, it just came on the station, and he wanted Garrick to try it, and he says, oh, this is, you know, this is awful, or this is uh, sinister, or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. He said that root beer is very sweet, and it's very cloying, and it's very insidious. You kind of start enjoying it. It's bubbly, and it's fun. Is the Federation's exposure, or has the Federation's exposure done exactly what Quark was warning that root beer would do to Garrick? Sure. Would just... <laughs> ultimately <laughs> subvert his, their expectations. And now he's grappling with that morality that he never had because he's actually exposed to people that are trying to find a better way for themselves. The Federation is trying to better humanity. They do things like uh, universal health care. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the doctor does that. And they all do s- these things to sacrifice for the betterment of their friends and for the station. When Quark observes all this going on, it's like, why are you doing that? That's not going to make you any money. Or why'd you do that? That's just going to put you at risk. He's always kind of sitting back. Yeah. You know, and he's, and he's waiting for somebody to prove him right. But most of the time he's been proven wrong. Right. You're right. And now yeah. Brunt has faced him with the very almost kind of rebooted version of this is what I used to be. And now he's coming after me the way I used to go after people. Yeah. And now my brother, who I love dearly, even though I give him a ration of you know, <laughs> irritation all the time, my brother is enjoying his life. He's enjoying his career. He's surrounded by friends, and he's well-respected in his, in his chosen profession. Why am I this guy and not that guy? Yeah, right, right. Well, this is turning point, realizing, like, my my happiness is my happiness, not my happiness is my job. My happiness is what's in my bank account. The, those are separate things, and, and it, it's cool to see him grow like that. Again, don't know where we're going to go with it exactly, but um, I, I do. There's another kind of amusing, but, you know, human relatable thing here, which is that you know the value monetary and otherwise that we put on our legacy after death so quark is excited that he will die a winner he's thrilled <laughs> thrilled early on but of course the reality is that he will not be able to enjoy it 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 really it makes no sense it, 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 you know realistically logically uh that that he would have to have that before he dies when when he's dead he's gone you know that's mm-hmm. that's the unfortunate truth of it uh but the ferengi and again the ferengi in this case being a reflection on us we as humans look at that too and we we look at the the whole host of things that we leave behind what is our legacy what what does it say to other people when we are gone? And more than a few of us 
look at that as monetary value as well. Sometimes for very pragmatic reasons, you're taking care of somebody else. But sometimes the way that Quark looks at it, it's like, I'm the winner. You know, mm-hmm. it's that, that old line, he who dies with the most toys wins. Well, still dead, <laughs> you know? Right, right. There's a saying also, mm-hmm. uh, very much like what you were talking about, where it, it's kind of like, um, you know, when you have so much wealth and so much accumulated goods and collectibles and all that kind of stuff, you're like, you know, when people will go to your funeral, the first thing they'll say is like, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's like the richest uh, so-and-so and so, uh-huh. and he's still dead. Is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right, right. So yeah, there there is something that Quark is kind of like grappling with here, and I think that's why he has such a hard time in letting go, letting Garrick assassinate him, because he, he doesn't want to die. Right. He doesn't want to die, and he doesn't want to keep on going, being the chasing wealth and and uh, ruining like relationships that I think he's starting to cherish, like relationships with Kira and especially with Rom, you know, with Kira sure. and Bashir and Dax. He he feels like this is my community now. And if I, if I go the way of Brunt, I don't see myself fitting in here as much as I don't really feel like I'm fitting in here yet, but I've slowly started building up a reputation. And I do think that Ron was getting to him. He's like, no, you are a valued member of this community. You're a businessman. You're a man of, you know, of, of certain prominence on deep space nine. Even though that Quark's like, well, it's just a small bar. It's just on Deep Space Nine. But Rom thinks that it's far bigger than that because it's giving him personal value. It's giving him something that's beyond money, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's reputation. Uh, even though the reputation with Ferengi equals money. But right. like I said, Rom, again, is very important in this episode because he's chosen a different path and sees things a different way. And I like that that's where at the end we we landed on the fact that they wouldn't let the bar just go bankrupt because they showed that it's kind of like Scrooge at the end. You know, they show that all of these people kind of come to his spiritual aid. In this, in this case, they come to Quark's aid and just restock the bar with the things that the bar needs chairs drinks glasses yeah and people yes yes that's the important in the end it's about the people right but one thing you know that we haven't really discussed uh is i think that in even though that the o'brien storyline isn't very uh a, a very large part of this episode one thing that i did kind of hone in on is that kira has a natural predisposition for for motherhood because when she took on Zial, she felt like, I need to give this young woman a chance to grow up as I never did. Yeah. And I think that she's kind of inherited this kind of like this mama bear protector for not just Zial, but now for Keiko's you know, unborn. Because Kira's like, I think that she's just adopted this mother-like protector role in her life somewhere. Now I know that we're, you know, I'm not naive to the fact that they wrote this scene in because Nana needed a way to, to insert her pregnancy into the storyline because you can't cover it up forever. Mm -hmm. But I do find it valid that she, the writers at least kind of slide that in very gradually and naturally. Yeah. I mean, in four seasons, you know, the, the complaint about Kira from the beginning was, Oh, she's this, you know, tough, militaristic, uh, abrasive ex-terrorist. And people felt like it was kind of one note. 
I didn't feel that way, but I, I certainly get it. And look how much layered depth they've given to her. Kira has had a couple of relationships uh, uh, along the road here. She has different kinds of friendships with different characters uh, on uh, on DS9. We have some really revealing stuff with her uh, talking to Cisco, and she thought that he was going to die. You know, they just, they found like, every nook and cranny to explore this character and giving her this ability to also be loving and motherly, which I'm glad you brought up the Zial thing because that, that definitely stands out. Um, It's a lovely way to have a fully fleshed out character instead of just one note all the time. It's time to examine the morals, meanings, messages, and whether or not Quark bears the brunt of discarding Ferengi tradition. So this was a fantastic episode. The discussion brought up a lot of very interesting points, and I think that we're just boiling everything down to one of the episodes that we think that has a lot of really good morals, meanings, and messages as we are wont to talk about here on Mission Log. So, John... Why don't you go first and uh, let us know, did this episode hold up for you? What are the morals, meanings, and messages that you took away? Sure. Um, I think overall it does hold up. Look, the B-plot isn't bad, um, but if you just sort of take the total amount of time and just how short and disjointed those scenes are, which is why in the recap I just felt the need to combine a bunch of them, uh, it, it feels like filler where it shouldn't just feel like filler. They got good stuff out of those moments, but it was very disjointed. Now, did it merit an A plot? Probably not. Uh, but certainly from a production point of view, very clever way to deal with an actor's pregnancy. So well done all around with that. Um, but let's talk about the A plot. This is a feel-good episode, which is high on the humor without dipping too much into being jokey. And on top of that, it has depth and it reveals something about Quark. It gives him identity and integrity. Um, Now, I suppose, I guess we just have to forget some of the truly criminal things he's done in the past. But this episode felt like a turning point and and it works pretty well. Um, You know, look, I hate to sound like a broken record, but put Jeffrey Combs in anything and I'm sold He's fantastic. He finds new depths with Brunt here as well. Uh, it, it just works. This is something that I enjoyed watching over and over again to prepare for this show. And I will certainly enjoy again. And I'm glad that we got to have uh, a serious conversation about the, the morals, meanings, messages. Well, I, I'll, I've already kind of revealed some of mine in the last segment, but I'll, I'll, I'll sum that up in a moment. But as a production, what did you think here? Yeah, I think this episode also holds up very well because... It's a nice kind of synergy and combination between a very good story, really fantastic acting, and a very strong message. That's That in and of a nutshell is when Star Trek is very successful. When you say we take the aliens on, at least on Deep Space Nine or in previous series, the aliens that they encounter, and you turn those aliens into the analogy of what we are looking at when we stare into the mirror. We look at ourselves. And Quark definitely here in this episode, or in general on Deep Space Nine as a Ferengi, he's the analog for just overall society, especially those who chase the capitalist way above everything else, above their feelings, above the feelings of others, above the feelings of their families. So we, we see a great deal of our own frailties in Quark, 
because as human beings, uh, especially those of us who have been raised in either religious or political or financial belief systems, we never really have a choice mm-hmm. from that moment. We never, we never really choose those paths for ourselves. And I'm sure for Ungi males, from the day that they're born, they are, they are, um, their pacifiers are probably plated with, with latinum. You know, <laughs> yes, and they are taught those yeah. rules of acquisition at a very early age, just yes. like we brought up the Ten Commandments earlier, just like religious it's, dogma yeah. and or political systems are trained into you at an early age, regardless of choice. Sure. So now when he has been exposed to different worlds and different cultures and especially the Federation, now he's looking at the lens of morality and how it affects him with these choices. And now he comes into conflict with right and wrong. And that's how we evolve as humans. We come into conflict with what we've been raised to believe versus seeing the outside world, being exposed to other people, and now taking that and juxtaposing it with, is this the right thing for me? Are these the right choices that have been made for me? Or is it time for me to stand up and risk kind of like being an outcast of my own circle of influence, my family, my friends, where I grew up, and at what risk. But it's, it's a moral victory that's really hard to try and fight for because you know that you're going to shed some of the personal relationships or maybe even family when you make these difficult choices. And Quark put himself at risk of the whole Ferengi society in doing so. Yeah, but that's the turning point. That's where he moves forward with his life. And hopefully, like you said, we don't know where we're going with this, but hopefully this will serve him better later on in the seasons. Here, here. So I think we're going to land at pretty similar places for our morals, meanings, messages. I mean, the, the first one is really summed up by that last scene in the bar. It's really about knowing who your friends are and cherishing and appreciating that. And uh, and it doesn't hurt to have a uh, neighborhood bar where everyone can hang out. But seriously, what that scene is saying and what they, what really Rom gets at is that people are your greatest assets. At the end of the day and what Quark was facing down the end of his life, it is the relationships that you make. It is the friendships that you make that are your worth, your legacy, that's what it's all about. And then the other part of it here about the rules. I, I, this, I think, is just, again, such a very Star Trek part of this episode. Rules are just rules. Written in a book or carved in stone, <laughs> the way that uh, the Nagus Gint says it as Rom. They're made up because we made them up. They have zero meaning unless we agree to give them meaning And we have to use our ever-evolving sense of morality and justice to allow us to always, without fail, keep them in check. The rules don't make us. We make the rules. I think very often we have that flip-flopped, and that leads us into a lot of trouble. Yeah, John, we're definitely landing on the same place here with this episode because there is something to be said about the rules of acquisition as applied here. And more importantly when to break them or when we choose to break them because this is how one's worldviews and relationships can cause you to question these dogmatic tendencies or these dogmatic mantras that have been ingrained in us uh, ever since we were small, ever since we were children. We've all had to make decisions and, and some recently more than others that have placed our beliefs over what is inherently right 
and we've also had to carry the burden of what those choices have done to us or what will happen when we make those choices as Quark is making these choices. So these are the voices in our head that we can't shake out from time to time because, of course, we're making that kind of change, that very, very significant personal change is terrifying. It's terrifying because you don't know what the future is going to hold. But if you don't, your future is going to be exactly what your past has predicated. Like you said, we make the rules. We, uh, we wrote them. We might as well be able to break them, right? So I'm going to quote something here from a previous episode we did. Uh, it was Rules of Acquisition. And mm. it, it's very ironic as, uh, in terms of, of where Quark is right now. But the, one of the rules of acquisition is never place friendship above profit. But I think that where the turning point is here, where Quark is concerned, is true profit is friendship, relationships. And I think that at the uh, end of the final equation and the final analysis, the only true currency that's worth having in this world are the people in our lives. And I know this is going to sound super cheesy, but I wrote this in a moment of weakness. Forgive me for being human. But I said that people shine brighter than latinum and in many cases are rarer than money or jewels or possessions. Their value is priceless. See, that is the first Ferengi-themed greeting card. So I think that's excellent. <laughs> Good job, Norman. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Broken Link. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. The next item on the block is the only known example of a feel-good Ferengi greeting card. Opening bid. One bar of latinum. Do I hear one bar? One? Anybody? End transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.